Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On today's show, we're joined by Don Colosino. Don is a filmmaker who has just started production on a documentary, Trusted Sources, that is about the decline of trust in news and those working to restore it. Don, thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. I've been wanting to talk to someone who works in documentaries, so we're going to connect a couple of dots by talking to someone who's making a journalism documentary. He's made one short one about the campaign for a national popular vote for president, which I watched and you can find on Amazon and in a few other places. Typically here, I would ask you to tell the story of your career path that led you to this point, but I'm going to take a little shortcut on that. Uh, you've got 30 years of career to tell us about. Your degrees are in electrical technology and electrical engineering. You worked at Intel for 16 years and at LSI in marketing for another nine. And then in your 50s, you went to film school. In 2015, you formed Colosino Productions. You make commercial, independent, and documentary films, short features as well, promos for organizations like Autism Speaks, also, I noticed, for local bands. With all that, how do we, uh, how do we get your journalism interest and your interest in journalism, uh, journalism work? Boy, it, goes, it really goes back a long ways. I grew up in a small town, and when I was in high school, I was able to get a job at a local radio station. So that's where I kind of got my feet wet uh, with you know, editing and even a little bit of journalism. In one summer, I basically was tasked with going in the morning, starting the coffee, calling the hospitals and police stations and writing up the, some local news stories to merge in with the Associated Press news off the teletype machine, which kind of tells you how far back that goes. But um, so that was a little my first experience, my first foray into journalism. But I'm, I'm not a journalist, um, but I, you know, I had a great interest uh, in editing. Um, I did a couple of radio plays while I was there, and that was a lot of fun. Editing then was, you know, splicing tape, literally. Then uh, that kind of went by the wayside as I went to engineering school. And um, when I got out, of course, I got uh, jobs in, uh, in the high tech industry. Um, when I went to work for Intel, I, uh, I was trained at one point to be um, a media spokesperson along with others in my group. So we went through media training and learning how people answer tough questions when you're you know, under the gun. And then um, that, you know, it went, took its own course. But then uh, much later on, uh, journalism, you know, was nothing I was really thinking of or even filmmaking at that point. But then the 2016 election happened and I started seeing, um, well, the media was being referred to as the enemy of the people, that not the media, but specifically news uh, media. And that just really bothered me, especially when you would see people, uh, you know, say things that were absolutely not true that you could absolutely verify just by looking at the pictures Anyway, that's, um, that was what kind of uh, got me interested in poking around at journalism a little more and figuring out how things were done and why people were buying into that false narrative. So why filmmaking? Well, filmmaking goes back to the editing stuff. And I've you know, done some video editing just as a hobby for decades. Um, but then uh, I sort of aged out of the high-tech industry, you might say. And I thought, okay, well, what do I really want to do? And, uh, and I thought about the editing stuff and you know, my home videos. And I thought, hey, maybe I should go to film school and learn how to do this professionally. So that's what I did. I took a couple of years, went to Colorado Film School, got a degree in writing and producing, and uh, 
while I was there, documentary film came up and that was one of the subjects I took. And so I thought this is a way I can really make a difference and kind of give back. So who were the journalists that you admired growing up and, and over time? Oh, gosh. Um, really, the first journalist, I think a journalist I think I was ever aware of was Walter Cronkite. I used to have to sit through uh, Walter Cronkite before I could watch the Flintstones in the evening. Um, but really, you know, as time went on, there were other you know, journalists I paid attention to. Judy Woodruff on uh, PBS is one that I uh, really admire. And Jen White on the NPR program, The 1A. Um, she just has a, a really great way of talking with people from, you know, all different uh, parts of the political and ideological spectrum. Give us a sense of um, history, because you mentioned Walter Cronkite, and people mm -hmm. had a different level of trust for news. The most trusted man in America, Walter Cronkite, uh, right. comparing as you were growing up to what you're seeing now with what you experienced uh, with the 2016 election and then like literally right now. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah. As I was growing up, you know, of course people trusted news because everything that you saw or read pretty much agreed, right? There were three major news networks and they controlled, you know, at least the national news that we all saw on television. Um, newspapers of course gave uh, a little more of a variety, but I think, you know, then as today, people probably get more of their news fed to them through the media, through the broadcast or now internet media. Um, but, you know, things have changed because as new technology came in, you know, the cable channels came in and that brought some very um, specialized or uh, focused, um, focused toward a particular audience type of newscast. Um, and then, of course, the when the internet came about, it started with chat rooms that, you know, it was really only a few a small percentage of people I think really got involved in. But then as social media came in, that sort of enabled that conversation to the masses. So what led you to, to, um, to do a movie or to want to do a movie about trust in media? Why do you think that this would make an interesting movie? Well, in 2019, I read um, a report by the uh, Knight Commission on Me Trust in Media. I forgot exactly what it was called, but the, the title of the report was Crisis in Democracy. And uh, it was all about the decline of uh, trust in institutions across America. And trust has been declining since the 1970s, uh, really after Watergate. Um, Watergate, you know, and, and all of the revelations that came out about that, I think really uh, gave people a lot of trust that the media was serving its purpose as a watchdog, holding our leaders to account. But since then, you know, and the technology that's brought in all of these different uh, disparate uh, I hesitate to say journalistic voices because they're not all journalists. But as all of these new voices came into the into the uh, realm of communications, people didn't know what to believe. And today we get so much information so fast from such a variety of sources that really people have trouble deciding or determining what's worthy of their trust. Outline the movie for us in terms of what you hope it to be. Well, the film will start out with an examination of trust. You know, what is trust? Why do we trust? Why do we mistrust? And what are the ramifications of mistrust of news? We see, for example, people who can't agree on basic facts, and that pulls our society apart, even pulls our families apart. We've seen public unrest based on misinformation. That means people are acting on information that actually isn't true. And that's a real danger for our democracy. So pretty high stakes. 
Then in Act 2, I'll go through a history of journalism in the U.S. and the many reasons for mistrust that have come up throughout that history. Um, for example, in the late 1800s, we had a period of yellow journalism. There's been plenty of examples of racial bias in news reporting and media ownership and a lack of diversity in the newsroom. Um, we've seen a spate of local news outlets closing down because advertising dollars are shifting to the Internet and people are not subscribing anymore because they think they're getting free news on the Internet. In Act 3, though, I'll follow the people who are working on solutions to each of these problems. We'll sit in on editorial meetings where editors and journalists are discussing ethical issues and which stories to report or how to cover them. We will follow journalists training other journalists to be more transparent about their reporting and um, why they've chose certain sources um, to, to increase the trust of their audiences. And we'll see people working to keep local news outlets open. Most importantly, um, we'll give people tools and techniques to identify news sources that are worthy of their trust. The whole idea is to you know, create a sense of value uh, of quality journalism. As a result, you know, people should be subscribing to uh, trustworthy news sources, hopefully uh, donating to their public media outlets, you know, maybe becoming a little more active in, in the community and in society helping to save their own local news outlets and working with legislators to drive public policy that prevents commercial companies from uh, amplifying misinformation. If people focus their attention on quality journalism, maybe we can keep our democracy together for another couple hundred years. History, psychology, and solutions, it sounds like the themes of this. Um, yeah. One of those people I know is Joy Mayer, who we had on as a guest um, in the early days of this podcast, who are some of the other people that you're talking to? Uh, so Joe Torres, um, it was a co-author of a book along with Juan Gonzalez, uh, who you may have seen on uh, Democracy Now. Um, they authored a book called uh, News for All the People, the epic story of race in the, in, and the American media. Joe Torres will be consulting with me on it. Um, Larry Rickman is the editor of the Colorado Sun, which is a public benefit corporation. It's an all digital uh, news outlet that um, it was started by people who left the Denver Post uh, in 2018 when it was bought out by a hedge fund. Um, Lynn Schofield Clark is a uh, professor of uh, journalism at uh, University of Denver. Rod Hicks from the Society of Professional Journalists has a really interesting story to tell of something that he did a couple of years ago called the Casper Project where he went out with some other journalists and um, held sort of an open forum over uh, several weeks uh, in Casper, Wyoming. Casper was chosen because it was probably one of the most, one of the least trusting places of news, the news media in the country. So they specifically chose that and learned some very interesting things. Uh, if you had a chance to ever watch the, the broadcast of it, the local PBS station broadcast it, um, it's really disheartening to see uh, how much bias people perceive in news, mainly because it doesn't agree with their own personal viewpoints. Viewpoints uh, that are that are in some cases etched hundreds of years old. Right. That's right. Yep. Uh, and, you know, and, and the thing is, with social media and we've seen with uh, Francis Hogan, the, the Facebook whistleblower uh, who testified before Congress, that now there's proof that uh, social media does amplify um, uh, things that are more sensational and it tends to feed us information that we already believe. 
And so they keep giving us more to keep us engaged. And you become, you know, you become surrounded by this echo chamber. So that's all you hear. And then when you hear something that doesn't agree with your opinion, you tend to question it more and, and believe, oh, it's just not true. With the uh, solutions that people are talking about, uh, what is the level of, I guess, realistic with them? Because I kind of feel like we're in this multi-generational problem. It's not mm -hmm. like the other side is just going to pack up and go home, right? Like, mm -hmm. you're not going to snap your finger and this be fixed. Can you give us some sort of uh, balance of maybe optimism and realism here as to how some of these things get solved? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, it's um, yeah, on the realistic side, we're always going to have misinformation and we're always going to have people pushing agendas. OK. And, and, you know, even uh, true journalists uh, may do this, um, but they, they will if, if they're doing it professionally, if they're really doing the job well, they identify and label what is opinion, what is advocacy versus what is supposed to be straight news. But that's that's the realistic side. Optimistically, um, and, and I believe there's a lot of room for improvement and we will get there. But we'll always go through cycles. Um, we're starting to recognize how I'll call it junk news is amplified, right? As I mentioned with uh, the Facebook whistleblower um, and lots of people are working on different aspects of rebuilding trust. Joy Mayer, for example, goes out and trains journalists uh, on how to earn back trust, mainly through transparency, do, through doing things like labeling information versus news. Um, there is an organization called the National Trust for Local Media or for Local News. The National Trust for Local News. Um, they have actually teamed up with the Colorado Sun to buy 24 Colorado newspapers that were in danger of either folding or perhaps being acquired by uh, an outside uh, organization like a hedge fund. So the idea was to keep those local news outlets first of all, publishing news, and second of all, keeping them in local hands. So they really reflect the views of the community that they're reporting in. There's another organization called Ad Fontes Media um, based uh, in Denver, Colorado, and they publish the uh, media bias chart. Uh, many people may be familiar with this from the internet, um, but they also work with corporations, uh, companies that want to advertise on the internet, but perhaps not put their news on a particularly biased news site. So they want to make sure that their, their advertising only appears on responsible journalism sites. So they consult that way. And they also do consulting with schools uh, and consumer uh, media literacy training. So those are just a few of the examples of uh, the kinds of solutions I'll show in the film. The micro-targeting thing is, is fascinating because you hear about micro-targeting and advertising and how I'm watching a show like Jeopardy. And suddenly there are things that come on products that I've got in my house. It's like, whoa, it's interesting that that can be applied uh, in, news, uh, in the news world as well with places that want to advertise in the best possible uh, place. Um, talking about your film background a little bit, what characterizes your filmmaking style and what are we going to see when, uh, when this movie is complete? Well, I think, you know, the first thing that, that I want to do is make sure that the audience can see themselves uh, in the characters in my film, because that's really the way to, to draw an audience in. And with this type of film, uh, particularly any documentary, really, um, you, you, want to, you don't want to try preach to the converted. <laughs> you want to get a, a, a broader audience. So I do a lot of on the street interviews, um, just getting the, the opinions of regular people like all of us. Right. Um, 
And, and I think that's what people will tend to see, where they'll tend to see themselves reflected. Um, I also like to let my interview subjects speak for themselves. I don't want to use voiceover to say what they meant or to, you know, take us necessarily in a, in a different direction. The voiceover might be used to connect parts of the film. And then I guess thirdly, you know, just being creative to make do with the budget that I have. Um, you know, I, thinking back to uh, one time working for a corporation when I was doing a training video, we wanted to have a teleprompter, but couldn't afford to rent one. So I built one. <laughs> and uh, well, anyway, so you'll see a lot That's the advantage of, of a tech background. That's right. That's right. Now, this is more mechanical than tech, but. <laughs> yep. That's awesome. Okay. So with Winner Take All, that's your other documentary. It's about a 30 minute film about the idea of a national popular vote and the national popular vote movement. You focus largely on the state in which you're in uh, Colorado. Can you just uh, educate people about what that film was and what you learned from doing it? Yeah, well, that uh, also was uh, kind of spurred by the, the 2016 election. Um, you know, the, the national popular vote um, issue, uh, there was actually a bill in, in the Colorado state legislature that was in the news at the time. And I saw a lot of misinformation and misunderstanding, really, of what the Electoral College was all about. So I, you know, did a little of my own research and thought, well, it really isn't that complicated if you take the time to you know, go research this, but not everybody does that. And so the one thing I, I wanted to, well, first of all, I also needed a, um, I needed a film uh, for my documentary filmmaking class. And I thought that was the perfect subject. Um, so I started out, I just made a 10 minute version of it for school, but then because it was something that really was in the news, I thought, let's make a good half hour program out of this. And so what I did was uh, got, you know, the legislator uh, who was sponsoring the bill. I talked to, uh, you know, political consultants. I talked to former electors. Um, I talked to the opponents of the bill and uh, just went through a little history to show how the Electoral College worked and uh, even created a little graphics to, to show um, how gerrymandering plays in with that. Absolutely. And what, uh, what did you learn about filmmaking from it? Oh, well, I learned for one thing that legal costs are tremendous. Okay. Um, anything, anytime you want to use particularly third-party footage, even if it's uh, old historical footage, someone probably has the rights to that. And you have to have a, a, a lawyer, an entertainment lawyer, go through every minute of your film um, and uh, ask you for proof that you have rights to use each frame of the film. And of course, that takes time. Time is money. I also learned to leave a little more breathing room in the in the time frame of the film. If you watch Winter Take All, there's a lot of information coming at you. I mean, it's kind of a maybe it's a rehash of civics class, but a lot of us think we understand the Electoral College and really we don't. There might be subtle details that we forgot. So I put so much into this. Universally, people told me, boy, I had to watch it, you know, two or three times to really get everything. And that's not what I want to hear as a filmmaker. So now it's like, you know, show some information and then maybe have a little music, uh, show people doing their jobs, doing whatever it is they do and let that information sink in so people can relax and enjoy it. And then finally, to just plan for distribution from the outset, um, because that takes a long time to, for example, get a broadcast lined up. How long did it take to go from kernel of an idea to finished product? On winner take all, probably about about a year, 
uh, on my current film, I'm planning for two years. And, uh, and I'm fine. And on winner take all that was funded all out of pocket and with a lot of free labor from my fellow students. Um, I don't have that luxury this time. So people need to get paid. And I found I need to raise funds. So that's what's, that's what's going to take this thing a lot longer. We hope it certainly gets to the next uh, to the next level. Do you have other filmmaking projects kind of in mind of a similar ilk once this one is complete? Well, I hope to do more documentaries that really, I mean, I, I feel that's the best way to, uh, to kind of give back to society a little bit. Uh, you know, I'm not doing these films to make money. Um, I hope to get my time paid for, but it's not like uh, I'm a Hollywood producer and I'm going to be making hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars. But no, right now I'm just focused on getting this film uh, to the finish line. If you were talking to a student journalist who had an interest in documentary filmmaking, what's the thing that you would tell them to be focused on like right now? Make sure you have a good producer because there are so many pieces of, of a film, um, so many moving parts. You really need someone to focus on it. Um, yeah, that's probably the and that's true for any type of film, not just documentary. Certainly. Uh, I, if we're going to be here and recommend your journalism movie to others, how about mm -hmm. you? recommend a journalism movie to us oh absolutely there's tons of them out there one of the most recent ones uh <clears throat> it just came out earlier this year and i think it's going to be running on national pbs again is a movie called storm lake and it's about um uh, a newspaper in uh, the town of storm lake iowa that um is struggling for survival and we go through this it, the film goes through the story of that newspaper it's a family-run newspaper and um the different um oh what do you want to say people in the town of different uh, different ends of the political spectrum and how they communicate with each other so you see a little of of all of that it's a really interesting film and it kind of shows the importance of the local newspaper Another one was uh, one called Page One Inside the New York Times. That was a film from 2011 that uh, a lot of people may have seen already. Yep. I think it was on Netflix, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. Um, yeah. And then, of course, uh, The Social Dilemma. That was from, uh, just last year. And uh, that film goes through all of the reasons that um, we might mistrust because of social media and what were pushed there. But again, unlike those films, I'm not just covering the problems. I'm trying to move to the solutions for those problems. And that would uh, certainly uh, that would certainly be very promising if you were able to do that. One other that I thought when you said page one, I thought you might also say obit, uh, which I loved, which was the profile of the obituary writers at the New oh. York Times as well. That was uh, excellent. That came out. Boy, that's probably six, seven years uh, old, but that's an excellent uh, documentary. All right, uh, last question. You've already saluted a whole bunch of people as we've talked here, but I'll ask you for one more. Is there a journalist or journalism organization that you aren't spotlighting in your documentary that you would like to salute for their good work? Yeah, definitely. I, and I've already mentioned uh, the program. It's the 1A on WAMU. It's an NPR station in Washington, D.C. I just love the way, first of all, the variety of topics that they cover and the in-depth discussions that they have um, from, with people from all parts of the political spectrum. It's funny that uh, my interests in this podcast and my interest in NPR both kind of moved up the ladder at right around the same time. There are a lot of great yeah. things certainly to, to pick off of uh, NPR. Don Colosino, a filmmaker, 
Thank you for joining us. Is, is there any way that uh, people can get in touch with you if you're inter- if they're interested in learning more about your film? Yes. Um, two ways. Uh, one, go to my website, the website for the film, and it's uh, trustdocfilm.com, uh, trustdocfilm.com. And there's a contact form on there, or you can uh, send uh, an email to info at trustdocfilm.com. And um, yeah, there's a trailer up on the website. People can donate to the film if they if they really believe this is something that uh, needs to, to get out there. And uh, look forward to uh, hearing from people. Great. Don Colasina, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I want to tell you about another podcast that goes well with this one. Join Will Hitchcock and Siva Vidyanathan on Democracy in Danger. Each week they interview brilliant guests who are helping them save government by the people one episode at a time. Find Democracy in Danger wherever you get your podcasts or visit dindanger.org. Their most recent episode is the first in a series on Democracy Hotspots, starting with Charlottesville. Check it out. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at JournalismSalute at gmail.com.